Well, again, we're talking about wounds. And if you have ever led anything in your life, whether you had an army behind you, or whether you were just winging it solo, right? Running something up the flagpole, see if anybody salutes it, right? Kind of tossing out your opinion. If you've ever done any of these things, you know <laughs> nearly any attempt to lead or even exert just enough influence, right, to get your granddaughters in the car when it's time to go home or stop dancing on the furniture. Part and parcel of wearing any kind of leadership hat is learning to deal with the attacks on your character, your motives, your integrity, even your faith. And my granddaughters have questioned all of those when we have attempted to get them off the furniture and into their car seats in the cow. They question are my motives, my character, and if my daughter would get them to church more often, they would probably question my faith because I know my daughters, right? Give them 10 minutes time out. You call yourself a Christian. But when the hurt involves a brother or sister in Christ, right, that hurts just a little bit more, right? We've got this idea that Christians don't hurt people. And then when it happens, we automatically assume because we've been hurt, we make that silly assumption that they must have done it on purpose because good people don't hurt other good people on purpose. But we arrive at that conclusion because we hurt. They must have done it on purpose, which is... Most often, just silly. Right, we're in week three of our series, Wounds Healing from Our Past. Two weeks ago, some biblical thoughts concerning the idea that monsters are in God's good creation. Therefore, if monsters are in the house, some things that happen in this world are simply senseless. Right, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. No logic, no law of creation at work, no meaning, no lesson. Just a rotten deal. Monsters in this world. Here's what that means to us. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean that you're failing or that you've done something to displease your Heavenly Father. Chances are you're just dealing with monsters in this world. Right? Last week, being abandoned or even feeling abandoned. And we concluded whether you were abandoned or just feel like you've been abandoned, God has never abandoned you and He never will. Right? No matter what we're feeling, right? We've got to listen to truth. Sometimes our feelings are not that honest, right? They've got ulterior motives, right? They want to protect us. And yet in Christ, we understand that we are supposed to be loving others. And that's so hard to make that transition. But again, regardless of how you feel, don't lose faith in God because he does not lose faith in you. But the question this morning is what happens when the very place whose purpose in part right, is to be the place of healing, right? what happens when that sacred place becomes a place of hurt, church hurt? Florida's district superintendent, Dale Schaefer, in last Sunday's introductory devotional to this week's journal entries on unity, those of you who followed along, um, he writes about the challenges of getting siblings to get along with each other and live in some semblance of peace, right? Who gets the bigger scoop of ice cream? The youngest. I can almost guarantee you it was Melinda. Um, my great-great-granddad, 94 years old, was put in charge of all of us one evening. I don't know what my parents were thinking. And he decided to give us ice cream. About two hours later, he gave up. 
because we just pitched a fit because Melinda seemed to have gotten the biggest scoop and we could not abide with that. Who gets the most expensive soda again? Guess who? Melinda. My pastor takes us to 7-Eleven the day before we all get baptized and he offers to buy us sodas and I tell my little brother and sister, don't get the expensive stuff, get the cheap stuff. Melinda has to grab the most expensive soda on the shelf. Who did mom and dad always seem to favor? Melinda, the youngest. I don't know if that's true in your family. Hope you're noticing a trend here. Now, we were a Christian family. We are a Christian family, right? And it wasn't on some wall plaque, but it should have been because I believe, I truly believe that it was my parents' heart's cry. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in harmony. Like, I don't know if that verse was on their mind, but that thought, that sentiment was definitely always on their mind in our household, right? They had their dreams, right? I mean, we were all together in one household still, so there was union, but not necessarily any kind of unity, right? Maybe you've heard Mark Twain speak on this. If you take two cats and tie their tails together, you're going to have a union, but there's not going to be much unity in that union. And that kind of described the Carter household. All the boyfriends and girlfriends, future wives, culture shock just a little bit. Continuing in verse 2, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. I picture my parents, right, dreaming of the day at an insanely expensive spa rather than a hot summer day with sweat running down their faces and all the kids complaining of boredom. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon, Hermon is Mount Hermon. Hermon is north of Judea. Judea is kind of a drier region. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, very dry. A little bit north in Galilee, very, very wet. A lot of uh, growth, a lot of greenery. Mount, Zion, Mount Hermon, is that, that's where that is. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon was falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. But we couldn't afford expensive, insanely expensive spas. My parents did the next best thing. They kicked us outside and locked the door. No, really, I found that out as an adult that that's what my dad would do when my mom had stuff to do. He would just lock the door. Little did they know that we were in the garage planning our strategy of divide and conquer. And we would. We would sit out there and we would plan things out. Okay, Melinda, this is your job. She'd always blow it. Robbie, you got to do this. Joanne, you know, you got, and, and I'll do my part. And we would. We would work mom and dad. I mean, you all recognize that, right? Kids are really, really good at divide and conquer, whether it's intentional or not. I'm not always saying it's intentional, right? They just, they just do it. It just comes so natural, so natural to them. I have zero doubts, zero doubts that most of my parents are arguing. Always revolved around disciplining us. I can imagine, I can almost hear them in the middle of the night, you know, I can't sell them, can't beat them. So they would just argue, and that's what they did. They argued, and it was always about us, right? We recognized that. And then I became a parent, and I, it all made sense. <laughs> Should we make her share her toys? Is this really a fight that we want to pick? Parents, y'all been through that as you sit and talk, and we're going to let this one slide, or are we going to have a drawn-out, drag-out? battle. How long should they be on timeout? Restriction, right? That's, that, that was the biggie in our house. Diane and I, we had radically different opinions. I was all for, you know, until you're 18, you're in your room, give me your phone. <laughs> you do not get to live anymore. 
and Diane, and this would happen every time. I could see it, I could see it, and I learned to recognize it. They would take their eyes off me and they would look to mom. Mom would be standing behind me. And I found out later, mom was, don't worry about it, right, and I spin around, like they're all not in cahoots against me. But Diane understood, she got it, and the girls are so lucky for that. Right, she understood that fine balance, that fine line between discipline and resentment. Right, and I, I didn't get it. I just wanted to make sure it never happened again and I was gonna make them <laughs> remember it should never ever happen again, right? She understood that fine line between repentance and forgiveness and restoration. I had a little trouble with it, clearly. And then in, in our, again, in our, our, our journal, the prayer journal we're working through, Superintendent Schaefer of Florida makes this statement. What's especially concerning is that siblings age, they don't always grow up. That one stings. I know my wife swears by this. When my family comes to town or I go visit family, she swears I turn into a 13-year-old junior high brat. I, and I, I deny it. I, I deny it. Maybe. A little bit. See, we often use terms like God's people and the family of God kind of interchangeably, right? When we talk about church, brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we all know, I think getting biological siblings to get along is a monumental task. Right? What about getting spiritual brothers and sisters to get along, right? You go to church one day and you got, boom, instant extended family, right? With no history, right? No traditions, no expectations, no nothing. You're just like, here's your brother. Here's your sister. Now get along. What? It is difficult. On top of all that, like D.S. Schaefer wrote, silly childhood squabbles become sillier, childish adult squabbles. Last week, we closed with Paul's instructions to spiritual siblings, really. It was to the church. Tragic if this were all that Paul wrote. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Here, let me just recap very quickly. This is Romans 12, starting in verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. Now, as I read this, look for some whys or some hows, all right? Just, just a little, little thought game as I read. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And I'm going to continue, but I just want to take a short little break right here and just say easy peasy, right? Lemon squeezy. Anybody having any trouble with any of these instructions? I didn't think so. You guys are all simply amazing. Not a single person raised their hand. Those are all of you ought to need to know that. Continue reading, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Little pause again, I'm not done. Notice that Paul, what Paul isn't saying is to do all these things if and when you feel like it. Chances are it involves somebody who hurt you from the context. There's a whole lot of talk about people that don't like you and your enemies and all that, right? Right? You will never feel like it on your own. I promise you, they're your enemy, right? It's not going to be a natural, oh, I want to love them, right? You're going to have to drum up something else. In the long run, right beliefs do lead to right practices and right behavior. But Scripture also teaches us that love is an action, that we're commanded to obey. It's not optional. It's more than a feeling, right? It's an action. 
Okay, okay. Let me keep reading. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that, that was like the first hint that there might be, I might not succeed, right? Everyone else is like, I gotta check, I, I gotta do all these things. And this one like gives me wiggle room, just a little bit of wiggle room. And then verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his... So we finally get to a why. Why are we going to do all these wonderful, amazing, lovely things if we succeed, right? If we can pull it off. Why do all these things? Well, it's to heap burning coals on their heads. And again, that's not to shame them, right? This is kind of a euphorism for it'll drive them to examine their own behavior and drive them to repent, right? You're, you're going to they're going to be ashamed of their behavior as compared to yours, and they're going to want to be better. That's the whole idea. It's not to kill them with kindness. But the question is how? It all sounds a lot like the old Nike commercials, right? Just do it. There was a funny video of a pastor in the pulpit. The whole sermon, he stood up and just looked at the people and just... Stop doing that. Start doing this. And stop. And he even named Dan. Dan. Not our Dan. Stop doing that. Stop doing all that. Just think positive thoughts. Just manifest it into existence. That's real popular right now. And it would be easy to preach just such a sermon. If I were to select, if I were to cherry pick this, this passage from the rest of Scripture... But therein lies the power of, of what we call a plenary inspiration of Scripture. I can't pluck this gem from the rest of Scripture and tell you all just to do it. Thankfully, we don't have to. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to kind of flesh out this idea in a couple of his other letters. Actually, he kind of talks about this very idea in all of his letters. Jesus spent quite a bit of time on this idea, too. Let's look at a couple of his letters. I want to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this, If anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. All right, so this, is, this screams for some background knowledge, right? Somebody has hurt Paul. They think it's severe. Paul seems to think it's not all that bad. So this passage is actually the culmination of a whole long series of events that started with a very personal attack on Paul's character, his motives, his integrity, even his faith and his efforts to deal with the accuser and limit the damage to the church. This is, this is like the end of a long process, right? Most Bible scholars are fairly certain. I'm just going to kind of throw something out here. You don't have to agree with me. That's all good and fine. Second Corinthians might actually be 4 Corinthians. Sorry to tell you that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, I wrote to you in my letter. Right? So how can it be 1 Corinthians if you've already written a letter? Most scholars call this the previous letter, and it might be contained. They're not sure, but it kind of makes sense. Like when they compiled all Paul's letters about two, 300 years after his lifetime, they might have gotten some of them a little bit out of order. Um, and, and again, what I'm going to tell you kind of makes sense. But again, you don't have to agree with any of this. That, that, that's all fine. What I'm about to share with you will still hold value. Um, Second, or 1 Corinthians is, is written in a response to that, that, that first letter. 
Um, and, and then the situation at, in the Corinthian church must have gotten really, really bad, so he sends a severe letter that we don't have. Might be the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. It makes a whole lot of sense. And then he feels so bad, everything works out, right? So he writes 2 Corinthians, the first nine chapters is a beautiful, we call it the letter of reconciliation. It's just a beautiful, heartfelt letter. So, given all of that, accurate or not, we do know that one person was behind nearly everything. One person, right? There was, a, there was a, a, an imp- sexually immoral person, but most scholars don't believe that that was the, the one that caused all of the trouble. That was just somebody doing what they want to do. There was somebody who was attacking Paul, constantly attacking Paul. Now, notice what he does here. It's rather amazing. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at his strategy, and, I want to look, and then I want to look at his mindset, right? Because I don't believe that Scripture tells us just to do it, right? Just, just go do it. That's impossible. Watch, watch Paul's strategy. Watch, watch his mindset here. Right at the beginning, if anyone has caused grief. Now, everyone in the church of Corinth knows who this person is. Paul knows who's this, who knows this person is, but he doesn't name him. He doesn't name him, right? After all, right, if this, this letter, imagine if the letter got out and other people read it. That was a joke, right? It got out. Wow. It's all good. It's all good. He graciously never mentioned the guy's name. And then he says, not to put it too severely, not to overstate it. Right? There must have been a whole bunch of people who were like, he needs to be punished more, or I, you know, maybe he didn't get punished enough. Right? And, and Paul's basically saying, look, he didn't kill you. He didn't kill your church. Chill out. Just, just relax. Right? And this is the first part of Paul's strategy for dealing with people who hurt him. Sage advice for any of us who feel like we've been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ. He didn't take it. Per- oh, my goodness. I thought that was a mouse. Somebody's drink rolled. Okay. <laughs> Sweated, suddenly flop sweat. He didn't take it personally, right? He was more concerned with the church, right? That, that, that's what Paul does with a pastoral heart. He has high regard for the dignity and the feelings of his accuser. That's a difficult place to get in, but he just, he obeys. He knows this is what needs to be done. He probably also knows that hurt people hurt people, right? You've heard that phrase. It's not an excuse, but maybe it's a reason. If it had been only Paul that was hurt, he probably would have followed his own advice from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and preferred to be wrong rather than, you know, pursuing personal vindication. But there were obviously other people hurt, and that's where Paul's heart went rather than to his own rights and privileges, right? His first thought goes to his people. Now, according to the probable outline of events, possible outline of events, the severe letter had prompted the church to take steps to punish the the offender who had been attacking Paul. And again, whether it was too much or not enough, according to Paul, it was sufficient. Listen to this. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. Right? Paul's aim, as should our aim be, isn't to knock a guy down as much as to help them back up. Paul's standard wasn't just some abstract form of justice. It was, it was Christian love, right? How do we love with mercy and grace? 
William Barclay writes this, the Christian duty isn't to render the sinner harmless by battering him into submission, but to inspire him to goodness. That, that's what Paul was trying to do here. Which just so happens to be his second piece of advice. Paul's motive was correction rather than vengeance. And again, I, I, I get this, right? When somebody hurts me because it hurt, I quickly assume they did it on purpose because if they liked me, they would never hurt me. And then I get upset because I thought they were my friend. And I want to get even. But the fact of the matter, lots of sins, and I think you'll recognize this, they're just good qualities gone to seed. Right? If you think about it, a burglar who pulls off a successful heist, they're pretty bright, right? Pretty resourceful. I mean, if you've been watching the Marvel movies universe, right? Evil geniuses are rather bright, incredibly resourceful. They're just misguided. They need somebody like Paul to, hey, let's turn all that energy back to something wholesome, right? The world would be an amazing, amazing place. Paul's goal wasn't to destroy good qualities as much as it was to harness them for higher purposes. Continuing in verse 8 and 9, it says, I urge you, therefore, to affirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. That was a weird phrase, weird little throw in there, right? In other words, Paul was to be obeyed. He expected to be obeyed, right, in both punishment and forgiveness. I don't know if you were aware of this, but David and Dan and I, we have a pastor above us for accountability, just, just like kind of similar sort of to this situation. His name is District Superintendent David Mori. right? And if Dan or David or I decided to ignore a legitimate request of his, our integrity and the integrity of this entire church would be called into question. The rest of the district would begin to wonder, what's going on behind, what's going on there at Richland Church of Nazarene? What, what's going on? You all would be hurt by what Dan or David and I decided to do or not do. Everyone would wonder, right? Tongues would wag. Additionally, Paul had started the church. He was the one that started it, right? And if he's under scrutiny, the rest of the city is going to look at the people in that church and go, well, if Paul's a slime ball. He must have attracted a whole bunch of other slime balls around him, right? So whatever Paul, whatever route he, his integrity, so goes the church. Verses 10 and 11. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, that's the goal of church discipline. And for that matter, any time one of y'all hurts one of y'all, or if a pastor hurts you or you hurt one of us, it's all the same kind of thing. The goal is forgiveness, restoration. Paul insisted that punishment must never drive to despair, must never take the heart out of a person. You push too hard and you push folks right into the arms of Satan, right? If you're over severe, people will leave the church and its fellowship. But if we're ready with forgiveness, it just attracts people, right? We love to be forgiven. Which was Paul's third reason for moderation when dealing with folks who hurt you. Discipline must lead to restoration rather than resentment. At the end of the day, restoration can only happen when we've made it very, very clear that even when we're angry and upset with the person, right, we still believe in them. I don't know if you remember a guy named uh, Phil Jackson. He was the Zen coach of the LA Lakers. He had a rule of thumb, five compliments to each criticism. And he followed it, and his team was pretty amazing. 
I mean, that was just his goal. If I'm going to criticize a player, I'm going to make sure that I have pointed out five good things, right? Dog trainers, I was watching a show on television the other day. Dog trainers know this. You speak a word of roughness, and then immediately, oh, whoa, 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 get my kid in right? The dog needs to know, and they do. They did something wrong, but they're still deeply loved. The puppy makes a decision. I, I got to have some more of that, right? So there's no fear in the puppy. It's just a choice for the puppy. Paul's point if we keep the right balance, the right sequence, that needs to be maintained. Right? And he himself is an example of how it's done. Forgive and forget. And of course, if nothing changes, more will need to be done, right? But bottom line, balance of wisdom and love will always be what's needed, right? As a situation develops, right? We, we, we roll with the punches somewhat. We remain flexible and work with people. So that's Paul's three-part strategy for loving our enemies now. How do you do that question? In a nutshell, we've got to have the mindset of Christ for the sake of the one who does wrong. That was the first thing on his mind. Protect this poor guy. Somebody's hurt him. He's lashing out. I know he's a child of God. I know God deeply loves him. Jesus died for him. I've got to play my part to make sure that that happens. His whole frame of mind was self-emptying, right, rather than protecting his rights and his privileges. And, and he did have rights and privileges. Rather than worrying about his own reputation, he focused instead on the reputation and dignity of the one that had hurt him. His second concern was for the followers in that local body. How would this affect them? Right, so his mindset was focused on the spiritual well-being of those whose part it was to forgive. Right? If the local Christians can't figure out how to forgive, forget and forgive, right? The church is in deep, deep, deep trouble. Right? We have got to become experts at forgive and forget. We've got to be the leaders in our world of forgive and forget. And again, within right, the circumstances. But again, none of this is simply a matter of getting things right in church life for the sake of order and tidiness. Right? That's not our goal has to do with a kind of a, a kind of a, a much larger darker issue it's about the church's stand against the accuser we know paul says the cunning plans he's working out for us we mustn't let ourselves be outwitted by the satan and then finally for the integrity of the fellowship of the church Again, it's really difficult for people to see who aren't directly involved, right? Maybe sometimes you hear about two people. Oh, they're mad at each other, right? And it, it, the information rolls through our small groups and our Sunday school classes. I get it. Don't, don't worry about it. And, and we, hear, we hear these things, and we think, well, they'll just, they'll need to figure it out. But we can't stand by. Personal disputes in, in churches affect everybody, right? Whether they're involved or not, the damage is done to the entire congregation. Even in this instance that we're looking at right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, right? The dispute that had repercussions even on people in another city in Troas. Verses 12 and 13, immediately following our passage, it says this, Now I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me there. Right? He's excited, but I still had no peace of mind. 
Because I did not find my brother Titus there. Titus was supposed to bring information up from Corinth. Did they receive his letter or did they, are they now even matter? And the situation has just gotten out of hand, right? And so he was all kind of freaking out. So I said goodbye to them and I went to Macedonia to find Titus. Because of the trouble at Corinth, Paul was so stressed that he couldn't stay where he was having lots of gospel success, right? A dispute will affect everybody. It will affect our reputation. People will find out they fight each other at that church. They fight each other in that organization or that place of business or in that family. That family's nuts. Stay away from that family. Now keep in mind, most of what Paul has been discussing, right, in this passage deals with church discipline But all of his advice also works and is completely applicable to any interpersonal relationships. I mean, this stuff just works all around. Whether it's a, again, relationship in a church, the workplace, the home, right? Because here's what's at stake. Siblings that don't grow up, right? We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be that place where hurt people hurt people. Right? But it happens. It happens. Why? Because hurt people hurt people. <laughs> and as the family of God, we've got to do better in responding to hurt people who hurt people. Here's the kicker. We don't have to do it under our own power. Right? Jesus did not leave us with instructions, just do it, or wish for it, or manifest it. You won't find that in God's word. Why don't you listen very carefully to what Paul says in chapter 4 of his letter to the church at Ephesus. I want to close with this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul is saying here that the prayers for unity have already been answered. Right? Unity and peace is already present in the church today. Right? It's not something we aspire to. It's not, certainly it's not optional. Right? It is. It is a fact. No need to go out searching, right? The power is simply right here under our noses. And then the clincher, the guarantee, the promise, and the power. There is. And I, do you notice it doesn't say there will be if you all get your act together? <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says there is. This is an established fact that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is, not who will eventually be, Right? Who is right now, today, and forever, who is over all and through all and in all. Right? Again, notice the verbs. There's no will be. It's all there is. This unity, again, hard to find it in today's doctrinal battles that really kind of heated up over this last several years. But it's real. And we just need to ask to be filled with that Holy Spirit daily. In Friday's devotional, the district superintendent of Metro New York City, by the way, all these devotionals are written by some people who have proven the ability to write really, really good devotionals, so they didn't just pick a Harry, Tom, Dick, and Harry. They, they, they chose some, some good, good writers. 
The DSM Metro New York City argues that the basis of the unity of the church is profoundly spiritual, which means that this passage accurately identifies those who are a part of God's kingdom as it is on earth, as it is in heaven, and those who are not. Right? This is that passage. This is kind of our, our scorecard. But here's, here's the amazing part. There is absolutely no reason under heaven that we can't keep the peace because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a risen Savior whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled for our benefit. And he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And he's left us with the gift of his Holy Spirit. There is no reason that we can't be the church that we want to be. Even when we hurt each other, because we will. We just will. But how quickly will we forgive each other? And not only in this church, but in your place of work, in your home. How ready are you to punish? And how ready are you to forgive? Just bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for Paul, who apparently listened really carefully to your son's words and showed us how do you do these things? What's our strategy? So, Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his letters, as messed up as they might be. They still contain so much truth. And we thank you for this, Father. In your son's name I pray.